Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, the writer says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The writer of Hebrews offers to the Christian a better Savior in chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8. And you might be wondering... Why does he do that? Remember who his audience is. These are Hebrew people who have made a confession and a profession of faith. Who have been exploring, if you will. And some of them have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. But now they run the risk of turning back to Judaism. Because of pain and because of persecution. And so the writer says we have a better sanctuary in chapter 9. We have a better sacrifice in chapter 9 verses 13 all the way through chapter 10 to verse 39. Both Jew and Gentile who have come to Christ are born with a heavenly birth. In John 1.13 it says, not by the will of man but by the will of God. We are seated in heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6. We're blessed with heavenly blessings in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. We're called with a heavenly calling Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. We're kept for a heavenly inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 4. We've obtained a heavenly citizenship according to Philippians chapter 3 verse 2. We're We are represented by a heavenly high priest in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24. All of this talk about heaven. Heavenly birth. Seated in heaven. Blessed with heavenly blessings. A heavenly calling. A heavenly inheritance. A heavenly citizenship. A heavenly high priest. The reason why all of these sources and citations of scripture point to the fact that this world isn't everything. In the book of Hebrews and the last several chapters, the writer has been contrasting the human high priest and our high priest. Jesus, the Lord, 
Human priests offered sacrifices for themselves. Jesus offers himself a sacrifice. The sacrifice of bulls and goats served, according to the writer of Hebrews, as an earthly copy, a shadow, insufficient in and of itself to accomplish the removal of sin. But we're under a new and a better covenant because we have a better savior in a better sanctuary and a better sacrifice. Again, as you begin to think through what he's saying, he invites you to consider his argument. In this section, verses 1 through 10, the writer of Hebrews is declaring the inferiority of earthly lambs with the superiority of the heavenly lamb. He points to the frequency of the sacrifices of the earthly lambs in verses 1 through 3. A failure of those lambs to permanently take away sin in verse 4. And then he'll contrast that with the purposes of Jesus himself in verses 5 through 10. And so look again in verse 1. For the law, this is Moses' law, having a shadow of the things to come. And not the very image of the things can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. The writer is basically saying the old covenant was insufficient and incomplete. But if you can imagine, if you're an observant Jew, if you are a person who has been born and raised and educated, a Jewish person, the Jewish person would ask the question, well, then what exactly did the Old Testament or the law and the sacrificial system do? What did it do? The burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering were all filled with powerful images and wonderful meaning. The burnt offering suggested total surrender to God. The grain offerings were made with burnt offerings as sacrifices of thanksgiving and devotion to God. The peace offering represented having a right relationship with God and celebrating fellowship. That's what the grain offering did. It was an opportunity to sit down and break bread. The sin offering was required for unintentional sin in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 2. And the trespass offering was required for unintentional sin against the Lord and against the holy things and against your neighbors according to Leviticus chapter 5 verse 15. And again in Leviticus chapter 6 verses 2 and 3. The whole point of all of these things, sin is a powerful horror. A barrier to having fellowship with God. And that's why the reoccurring theme in the New Testament is the soul that sins, it shall surely die. For the wages of sin is death. There's none righteous. No, not one. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is a problem. Sin is a problem. Sin is a horrible and a terrible problem. And imagine you live in a world... 
where you don't believe that. You don't even believe that even for a minute. You think sin is like hurting one another. And that you forgive each other. And why can't you just get over it? Why can't you just get past it? Why can't God just say, "Uh, you know, I couldn't help but noticing you're all sinners. But I'm just going to sort of, you know, I'm going to sort of let it go. Particularly for the person who says, well, isn't this the way you made me? Didn't you make me a sinner? Didn't you make me a person who lives in rebellion and disobedience? Wasn't I born in iniquity according to, this, to the Bible? Don't, do I have no other choice but to sin? And what it does is it reveals an inadequate and an inappropriate and insufficient understanding of the scripture. Because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God created man and woman perfect and unique. In order to have friendship and fellowship with God, it was a human being's sin and rebellion that caused them to go astray. But even in that sinful, horrible, terrible condition, God's going to send a remedy. He's going to provide a solution. Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God, he writes. Remember, remember what salvation is. It's the full delivery from someone or something because you are in danger. And it's very hard for some people to understand that when you are enslaved and you are in bondage, that what the slavery and the bondage causes. So John Phillips writes, in the Old Testament era, the Israelites had only shadows. The substance is in Christ. The shadow of a key cannot unlock a prison door. The shadow of a meal Can't satisfy a hungry man. The shadow of Calvary cannot take away sin. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? The shadow of a key can't open a door. The shadow, you know, it reminds me of a story. Many of you are familiar with Harry Houdini, the great escape artist. Remember, he boasted that he could escape from anywhere under any circumstance. And he would offer a reward if anyone could bind him or imprison him and he couldn't escape. And um, a sheriff in New England took him up on his offer and he put him in his jail. He marched him into his little jail and he closed the door and he said, now escape. And so Houdini went to work. He went to work. He, he pulled out a, a, a thin piece of metal that he had uh, hidden and he started working on the lock and he started working on the lock and he worked for 10 minutes and, and 20 minutes he broke a sweat. At one hour he was drenched in sweat. After two hours he kept working and working but the door wouldn't open. The door wouldn't open and in exhaustion he fell against the door and the door opened. Because it was never locked. He was trying to open a door that had never been locked. So what were these shadows? The shadows 
were that sin had created a barrier and the necessity for expiation. And that's just a fancy way of saying the need for a remedy, the provision of forgiveness, the basis of a sacrifices. There's these hints, there's these shadows, there's these indications. And the shadow is an interesting word in the, in the Greek language. It's skin. And it's contrasted with the, with the word image, icona, for the law having a shadow, image of the good good things to come and not the very image of the things to come. This is an interesting word because it's used, the word icona is is used to, to mean a true image or an exact representation. It's used of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 where Paul writes that, that Jesus is the icona, the icon. The exact representation of the invisible God. And so the writer of Hebrews points to the offering. Made year by year. Year after year. He's speaking of of the offering of atonement. Offered for centuries. Now there was a break in the action because... During the Babylonian captivity, the temple was destroyed and there was no offering made. After the time of the captivity and Nehemiah and the rest and Ezra and the rest, they returned. They rebuild the temple. And from the time of the rebuilding of the temple, week or year after year after year after year, as you march into the 4th century and the 3rd century and the 2nd century and the 1st century of Jesus and the writing of Hebrews year after year after year the atonement offering was made and it says in the present tense which leads Bible scholars to believe that when this letter was written the temple still existed They were still making the offering. They were offering the sacrifice in the Jewish temple. And so in verse 2 it says, For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. The writer is basically saying the very fact that you have to offer it year after year after year after year becomes compelling proof. That it's not efficient. That it's not sufficient. So when he says, for then would they have not ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by no more consciousness of sins? He means no longer disturbed by sin. No longer disturbed in their conscience. The presence of guilt remained. The presence of shame remained. And remember, for the Jewish person who participates in the sacrificial system... There's always next year. Because you would accumulate a sin debt throughout the year. And it would have to be paid again. And it would have to be paid again. And again. And again. And the presence of guilt remained. And the presence of shame remained. By the way. Do you know what the difference between shame and guilt are? Guilt is the idea that you did something wrong. You get caught doing something or you say something or you do something and it's wrong. And you say, I did something wrong. 
Shame is different. Shame isn't just simply the confessing of doing a wrong act or a wrong deed. Shame is the confession, I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. There's something broken. There's something so broken that just simply confessing to a wrong action doesn't fix who I am. And so there was the sense of the presence of guilt and the presence of shame. And so in verse 3 it says, but in those sacrifices there's a reminder of sins every year. The animal sacrifices didn't remove sin. It served as a constant reminder that sin remained. Let me give you kind of an example. April 15th serves as a reminder that taxes are... By the way, when you pay your taxes for the previous calendar year, does that satisfy your tax debt forever and ever? Amen. Or do they want money every year? Every year they want to do it. They want more money year after year. John Phillips says, quote, all the Levitical sacrifices did was lashed the offerer's disturbed conscience, unquote. And so what would these offerings do? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I need forgiveness. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I need forgiveness. Verse 4, for it is not possible. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So if he's saying, if it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, what exactly did it do? We're back to the original question. Then what are we doing and why are we doing it? The types, the symbols are instructive, yes. Illustrative, yes. Effective, no. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Imagine you go to a bank for a loan. You explain why you need the money. The, the, the profit you hope to make and the plan you have to repay the debt. And so the bank agrees to your plan, but it asks for a cosigner. And someone who will obligate himself or herself to repay your debt in the event that things don't happen the way that you hope that they happen. And so a contract is drafted and a promissory note is made and the rate of interest is agreed upon and a date of repayment is set and the bank signs the note and your friend signs the note and you sign the note. But you don't make as much money as you had hoped. Your plan doesn't come through. As a matter of fact, you can't repay the debt. And so you ask for more time. And the bank agrees and extends the terms and the repayment plan. Not because they trust you, but because they trust your friend. Not because you have the resources, but because your friend has the resources. And the loan gets larger and the debt gets larger. And as the debt increases and it grows bigger and bigger and bigger and you're still unable to repay the debt, the bank keeps your note alive because your friend is alive and can make good on the debt. That's exactly what the sacrificial system was. 
Each sacrifice carried with it an endorsement of the Son of God. The animal sacrifices were promises to pay. The animal sacrifices were promises to pay. And and by bringing them to the altar, the Hebrews acknowledged the accumulation of the debt of sin. And each sacrifice carried the endorsement of the Son of God. And that's what the Bible means when it says, didn't this come by the revelation of God? Wasn't this the revelation that was given? Given by Moses, yes, yes, and yes. And so the time would come, of course, the time would come when the debt would have to be discharged and the payment would have to be made. Now I want you to think about this just for a moment. And so the time comes, the Messiah comes. And he lives. And he dies. You all know that story, but I want you to just think now for a moment. I want you to think now for a moment for the Jewish person, for the Hebrew person. For the Jewish person and the Hebrew person who rejects the Lord Jesus. They they reject him. They reject him as the Messiah. They reject his claims. They reject his miracles. They reject his Life, they reject his death, they reject his resurrection, and by rejecting him, they reject the payment. But who's who's responsible for the debt? Who becomes responsible for the debt? They become responsible for their own debt. The person who rejects Jesus assumes the full weight of their debt, the full payment for their sin. What a foolish thing, what a foolish thing to return to the shadow when you can have the substance. What a foolish thing to return to the debt. Um, imagine, imagine you have accumulated this gigantic debt and finally the person shows up and pays your debt in full and you say, no, I want the debt. I want to pay my own way. Okay, so let me understand something. What do you want? I want to go back to the promissory note and the accumulation of debt and the animal sacrifice. By the way, this is what the writer of Hebrews is going to argue. The writer of Hebrews is going to argue, can you return back to that system? Can you go back to the old arrangement? The answer is no. What exactly did the Old Testament sacrifices do? The answer to that question is they postponed the payment, the final payment, the ultimate payment. And that's why the writer says, look, the teaching and the testimony of God. Now in verse 5, it says, therefore, when he came into the world, who came into the world, by the way? Jesus. The Bible says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. In John 1.1, it says, he came from heaven and he came to the earth. And 
the statement is made that he pitched his tent. He tabernacled among us. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. The payment has arrived. Our first great certainty is the reality that a real Jesus is born into the world. And so at Christmas time or during the time of the incarnation, now all of a sudden you begin to understand the reality of of the gospel, of the good news. Payment has arrived. Payment has arrived. Satisfaction for your sin has arrived. The payment has come. Our first great certainty is that Jesus is born into this very real world to pay a real debt. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And if you go back into the Old Testament and you turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, you read David's words. David writes or sings, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, when the psalmist writes, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, my ears you have opened. The expression, my ears you have opened, is a Hebraic expression, which means I'm listening and I'm willing to obey. We have a similar expression in our own culture and society. Has anyone ever said to you, I'm all ears? They don't always mean what they say. But if a person says to you, I'm all ears, hopefully they're making the statement, I'm listening to what you have to say. I'm paying close attention with a view of giving due consideration to what you're saying. That's exactly the meaning here. Some Bible writers equate this with the Old Testament practice that was given After every seventh year, it was required by law that you had to liberate the slave or the servant. Imagine a person sells themselves to you in order to satisfy a debt, but this person comes to love you and you come to love them. And but according to the law, you release them. You release them according to the dictates of the law. But the person says, I've gotten married here and I've had children here and I would like to remain here. And in the ancient culture, they would put the person's ear on a door and then they would pierce it through with a nail because this means that this person voluntarily submits themselves to remain a servant 
In spite of the loss, David knows. So it's the Old Testament practice of piercing the ear as a sign of voluntary and perpetual service. And so some have, have taken this to mean that the person who's speaking is saying, guess what? I have agreed to voluntary and perpetual service because of our love relationship. David knows that God isn't content with mere service and mere obedience. And so when he says, (laughs) sacrifice and offering you did not desire. By the way, David writes this a thousand years before Jesus ever shows up. A thousand years before Jesus ever shows up, David knows that God isn't content with mere service and mere obedience. I'm going to ask you a question. Does David know that God wants David's obedience? Yes. Does David know That God wants David's service? Yes. Does David know that God wants David's heart? He does know that. That's part of what he's admitting. He's admitting it. But at this point, this becomes a wonderful opportunity for you. Do you realize that God wants your obedience? Do you realize that God wants your service? But do you realize that he wants something way more? He doesn't just simply want your obedience. He doesn't simply want your service. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And so David is in effect saying, I'm here to do what the law requires. But he's also saying, I'm here to do what the law requires. And I want to do it from my heart. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you said, I'm going to do this because I'm supposed to? And then you changed it to, I'm going to do this because I want to. By the way, what happens when supposed to and want to join forces? That means that's obedience from the heart. That's the point. So how does the writer of Hebrews interpret this passage from the book of Psalms? He invites us to consider that God the Father and God the Son are in conversation with one another. They're discussing the details of the incarnation. And the plan is to provide a body. Jesus will be born In a virgin's womb, Jesus will be born and be given a body. The sacrifices and offerings are no longer needed and they were never pleasant. There's a better solution. There's a better solution to the problem of human rebellion and the problem of human sin. And so the writer of Hebrews is pointing to the incarnation as the prelude to sacrifice. Jesus comes to die. But not just simply to die. But to die for you. 
to make satisfaction for you. And so the writer of Hebrews points to the incarnation as the prelude to sacrifice. This is the gift of God. Jesus comes to show us the love of God. Jesus comes to take up our sin. Jesus comes to take up our guilt, to take up our condemnation. Jesus comes to offer himself the perfect sacrifice. He comes to make us acceptable to God. He comes in order so that we can have friendship with God. All of the other things, shadows. Jesus, the substance. In verse 6 it says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Stop. He's quoting the psalmist. He's interpreting what the psalmist says. Has anyone ever asked you the question, Did God like all those animal sacrifices in the past? What's the right answer? It has to be no. Read it for yourself. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Could that possibly mean for burnt offerings, it smelled like barbecued ribs? Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. It's like Texas barbecue. Oh, I'm smelling that side of beef. Have you ever smelled real good beef cooking? It's yummy. But the Bible is basically saying the Old Testament system of animal sacrifice brought, read it for yourself, no Pleasure. Why? Can a non-moral, non-spiritual, non-righteous being have the same value as you? Does God care about you? You see, God made you to think and act and believe And interact with him. You're capable of friendship. And fellowship with him. And so God knows something. In order to have a permanent solution. To the problem of sin. He himself is going to have to be. That solution. It says in verse 7. Then I said. Behold I have come. In the volume of the book. It is written of me. To do your will. O God. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me. Which book do you suppose he's making reference to? Are the Jewish people the people of a book? What book is that? Is it the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? Joshua and Judges. Is this the book that he's talking about? Is it the Old Testament revelation that he's making reference to? Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. The Jewish people are the people of the book. And so the writer argues that the Jewish people should know and understand because they are people of the book. 
Why should they know and understand? Because from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the reoccurring theme, the overwhelming message, the reoccurring theme is that God has a plan and God has a purpose and God has a plan and God has a purpose. Remember Jesus after his resurrection as he's walking on the road to Emmaus. Remember the Bible says that he began to reveal to them from Moses and the rest of the scriptures all of the things concerning himself. And so he begins in Genesis and he continues in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy because the reoccurring theme is human beings have a problem. The problem is sin. The human beings are going to need a savior and Jesus is going to be that savior. The life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus is controlled by the book. Will Jesus do anything that's inconsistent with the book? Will Jesus do anything forbidden by the book? Will Jesus do all of the things required by the book? And see, this is why this becomes so important. John Phillips says, quote, in type, and shadow, and precept, and principle, and prophetic vision, in direct utterance, the Old Testament was full of the theme. What possible excuse could there be for a person familiar with the book to turn his back upon the reality of Christ? This is equally true today for a person living in a land where you have an open Bible. You are people of the book as well. We're people of the book, aren't we? This is why we open this book. This is why we study this Bible. The Bible, beautiful in language, Psalm 23. The Bible, incorruptible in its nature, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Blessed in its bestowment, Psalm 32. Loving in its message, John 3, 16. Enlightening in its guidance, Psalm 99, 105. This book, this book becomes the way to understand the mind of God and the heart of God and the will of God. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Paul told the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 13, when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word. But for what it really is, God's word. Do you know what Paul is saying? When you heard the message that I gave to you, you understood it as coming from God. You understood that the message that we gave to you about the problem of sin and the need for a savior. You may criticize the Bible. But it's been my experience that most people criticize the Bible because it criticizes them. The Christian philosopher and writer Carl F.H. Henry said, quote, There's only one real inevitability. It is necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. And so when God makes a promise to Adam and Eve that she's going to give birth, that a woman is going to give birth to a man, 
When God makes a promise to Abraham and then he makes a promise to Isaac and he makes a promise to Jacob and he makes a promise to Judah and he makes a promise to David and then he makes a promise to Isaiah and Jeremiah and he promises that the children of Israel are going to return from their captivity and he makes promises to Ezra and Nehemiah and then the promises are heaped one on top of another that a virgin is going to conceive and that a place is going to be set aside and that a person is going to be born and that he's going to be crucified. God's going to keep every single one of his promises. And human beings may battle the Bible and marginalize the Bible and criticize the Bible and challenge the Bible and debate the Bible and demean the Bible. But it remains the best source To explain the human condition. And to explain our need for a savior. You know people look for contradictions in the Bible. And I think that the reason why they look for contradictions in the Bible. Is because the Bible confronts and contradicts. Their sin and rebellion. Against God. Again the great theologian J.I. Packer said. God the father. Is the giver of the holy scripture. God the Son is the theme of the Holy Scripture. God the Spirit is the author, the authenticator, and the interpreter of Holy Scripture, unquote. Luis Palau, some of you hear him on the radio, he says, back to the Bible or back to the jungle. I love that statement. We will go back to the Bible or we will go back to the jungle. Because people, people, people will look for a source of authority. John Stott rightly wrote, quote, If we come to scripture with our mind made up, expecting to hear from it only the echo of our own thoughts and ever the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior, unquote. You know why that's such an important statement? Because that's exactly what the Bible will do. If you keep reading it, it'll change you. It will change you. Do you know what it will really do? It'll mess you up. It'll overthrow your thinking. It'll undermine your selfishness and wickedness. It'll reveal your sin. But it will also give you a remedy for forgiveness. It will cleanse your heart. It will cleanse you and wash you. It will free you and liberate you. As you begin to understand that the promises are real. And that the promises are true. That's why again look in verse 8. Previously saying sacrifice and offering. Burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire. Nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Remember what the Jew is saying. Why did you do this? 
What purpose did it serve? Postpone payment. Postpone payment. Postpone payment. In verse 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews, this is the writer's interpretation and application of the passage in the book of Psalm. Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. God took away the first covenant. Read it for yourself. God took away the first covenant in order to establish the second covenant. So for the person who says Jesus came not to abolish the covenant, but to fulfill, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Did Jesus come to fulfill the law? Yes, he did. Do you know what the writer of Hebrews says? The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus signals the end of one and the beginning of the other. Jesus says the old sacrificial system, gone. The old priesthood, gone. The old temple, gone. By the way, the text seems to indicate That when this particular book was written, the high priest is still the high priest, the temple is still standing, and the sacrifice is still being offered. The writer of Hebrews, gone, gone, gone. The one perfect and complete has made the imperfect And the incomplete, obsolete. And so in verse 10, he says, By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look carefully. By that will, verse 10. Whose will is this that he's talking about? By that will. Whose will? It's God's will. By that will. What is God's will? It's God's will that a Savior come to save you. That's his will. Is it God's will that Jesus come to the earth and save you? Here's what the writer of Hebrews is arguing. Did Jesus voluntarily, in submission... In obedience, submit himself to God's will for you. That's exactly right. Jesus is utterly obedient to God's will. We've been sanctified. That means our sins are forgiven. We're set apart from God. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Think about what the writer is saying. We are set apart. Let's do first things first. We are forgiven of our sin. We are set apart to God. For God. What is the author telling the Hebrew Christians? The coming of Jesus was foretold. 
The cross of Jesus is foretold. The prophet King David hints that the Levitical system and sacrifice a thousand years before the coming of Jesus anticipates that there will be an end to that sacrifice and a beginning to a new covenant. Jesus said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 6, 39, it says, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last day what is the will of God Jesus said it's to save you Jesus said it's to save all of you Jesus said it's not only to save you and to save all of you Jesus said, not only can I save you and I can save all of you, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring all of you back to life. No, you can't do that. Can you? Could you do that? Could a person in this world live their life, come to the end of their life, And then be buried or burned or placed in an ocean. And can God dredge the sea and the graves? And can he bring every single person back to life? This is what Jesus says. I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus says, this is God's will. It's God's will for me to save you. And it's God's will for me to bring you back to life. Now you know the will of God. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know the will of God. You see the son of God. Believe the Son of God. Receive the Son of God. But you know it's been my experience? Most people don't want to know the will of God in order to do it. They don't want to know the will of God in order to do it. They want to know the will of God in order to debate it. Or to find a reason not to do it. Or not to apply it to their life. William Barclay was right when he said, quote, there's only one way. There's only one way to bring peace to the heart, joy to the mind, and beauty to the life. It's to accept and to do the will of God. It's God's will that you experience his love and that you experience forgiveness and that you experience hope. Not only is the coming of Jesus foretold, Not only is the cross of Jesus foretold, but the competence of Jesus is foretold. What? In what way? 
The Lord Jesus acts in submission. The Lord Jesus acts in dependence. The Lord Jesus acts in humility to the Father. Jesus comes from heaven. He receives a human body. In that human body, he fulfills God's plan. He fulfills God's will. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle. A miracle foretold by God, ordained by God, foreknown by God. And so what does this sacrifice of Jesus do? Like the burnt offering, Jesus surrenders to God on behalf of the sinner. Jesus empties himself and becomes sin for the sinner. How do we know that? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's so important that I'm going to turn there. And for those of you who are people who actually underline your Bibles, this is one you're going to want to underline. This is one that's going to be important over and over and over again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, that's God the Father, made him, that's God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul sees something that most people don't see. Paul sees that Jesus isn't content to simply forgive your sin. But Jesus is willing to impart to you his very righteousness. So that you're accepted by God. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus sets us apart to God forever. And then this powerful, wonderful word, the writer of Hebrews hopes to impart to his or her readers. The sacrifice of Jesus is then applied to each person personally and permanently. Personally and permanently. The writer of Hebrews knows That only Jesus can please God. The writer of Hebrews knows that only Jesus perfectly did God's will. The writer of Hebrews knows that Jesus is our salvation and our justification and our sanctification. And that's why he's pleading with the people. There isn't a second option. Who's accepted by God? Jesus. Who is acceptable to God? Everyone Jesus brings with him. You know, I heard the story of a street preacher and an unbeliever who, this this unbeliever was a guy who made soap products. And the soap maker told the preacher, this gospel that you preach can't be a very good gospel because there's still a lot of wicked people. And the preacher was silent until they passed a child who was covered in mud. This child was laying or sitting in this mud puddle making mud pies. And the child was covered from head to toe with dirt. And, And the preacher said, George, your product can't be very effective for there's still a lot of dirty people in the world. And George said, my soap cleanses only those who will take a bath and use the product. And the preacher looked at him and he said, exactly. Exactly. Precisely. The man was caught in his own words. 
The gospel of salvation works only for those who will come to him, who will receive cleansing. They have to apply the blood. They have to be washed in the word and the blood applied so that the heart is cleansed. This is only the first 10 verses. We have to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you. Lord, over and over again, the reoccurring theme that the writer of Hebrews made. Religion won't work. Ritual won't work. Relationship will work. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray for that person. who's in a battle with this Bible. Which part should I believe? The beginning? The middle? The end? Heavenly Father, we know that if the beginning's not true, then probably the middle's not true. And if the middle's not true, the end is probably not true. But if it's true in the beginning, if it's true in the middle, if it's true at the end, then Lord, we have a way to think long and hard about who you are, who we are, and what we need. And so Heavenly Father, I pray that you would become that Jehovah Jireh, that provision for guilt, cleansing, for hurt and pain, healing. For guilt, forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.